Yeah. Um, at least I didn't say good evening. <sighs> yeah, small victories. So we still have another people on vacation, and uh, the roads are slippery, and others don't want to risk it. I don't blame them. We did slide on Santa Fe, um, going straight, but we were. I could feel my. Well, I'm, wait a minute. I don't <laughs> keep it even speed. So that's in the shady parts more than anything else. We have um, no pressing announcements, and uh, we have other than well, it's January. Today's January 2nd. So I'll tell you now, the annual congregational meeting is Sunday, January 30th, following morning worship. Because we think it might be a little longer uh, than usual. Because we have a couple of items to deal with there. But we will have a Sunday school class before then to take any questions so we can possibly make it shorter at the actual congregational meeting so everyone knows what's going on. Um, Other than that, we have the call to worship. Praise waiting for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. Bow hearts and heads in sound of preparation for worship. stand and sing hymn 356 356 
us pray. Gracious God above, we call upon your grace and mercy and the power of your spirit, Lord, that we would focus upon you, God, that we would praise your name, Lord, that we would come with joy in our hearts, knowing of your love promised to us and exercised over time and even through our lives, Lord, even if it doesn't feel that way, for our good and ultimately for your glory. Be with us this morning, God, in your special name we pray, according to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the As it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have the responsive reading inside the bulletin. It's an insert. Insert inside the bulletin. Psalm 28, or at least part of it. I'm going to say it responsively. I'll, do the, I'll read the boldface. To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity, who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of his hands, he shall destroy them and not build them up. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song, I will praise him. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. So here is a typical psalm that we think of in which he cries to God for deliverance and help and difficulties in his life in particular. External difficulties. This isn't his own sins as much as the wicked that are around him who speak peace to their neighbors, probably him, and but they're lying in their hearts. And so he asks for help and deliverance, and God shall be a shepherd for his people and is our shepherd to this very day. We can cry out to him. Let us go before him with prayers and thanksgivings and God's covenant community prayer. Let us pray. We pray God above for your people. We pray for members of this church, members of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, members of various ascendant churches across this state, nation, and the world, God above, that you would be with your church, your bride, and that you would purify her and strengthen her, God. 
We ask in particular, Lord God above, for our sins as we struggle with them, Lord, that you would forgive them, that we would come to you, Lord, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness as you've promised in your word, your mercies that are new every day. We see that over and over again, God. We need such encouragement. This is partly why we have the stories of the Old Testament where we see, Lord, your people and the stubbornness of their heart, and yet your faithful love and mercy towards them, as we see in Samuel, God, in the raising up of King Saul. And so, Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your long-suffering. Long-suffering, God, for our foolishness, for our slowness of heart, and thus, Lord, an exercise of your love towards us and your covenant faithfulness. We pray, Lord, for our families. We ask, God, that you'd be with the husbands to stand firm in their duty and not to give up hope, Lord, and to exercise and expand their love towards their wife, Lord, and they would lead their family, God, unto you and through the perils of this world. We pray, God, for the wives to stand firm in their duties before you, Lord, to grow their love towards their husband and towards their family, God, and that they would submit to their husband and ultimately submit to you, God, above, that you would strengthen and protect them, Lord, protect our families, protect our children, that they would also enlarge in their hearts towards one another and towards their family, God, towards their parents, Lord, in a day and age in which they are taught to hate their parents and look down at their parents and make fun of their parents, Lord. We ask, God, that you would, we pray through your Spirit, be with our families, Lord, those who have children and those who do not, Lord, uh, those who are single, God, that you would protect them as well and help them find a godly mate. We ask, God, that we would continue to stand firm in the duties you've given us as those who are singles or those who are couples or those with children, God, or those with children who have grown up and left the home, Lord, and that we would exercise the abilities you've given us in those contexts, Lord, the responsibilities that we have with a joyful heart, with a desire, Lord, to do the right thing and always relying upon your grace and mercy to cover our sins, for we will fail and we will stumble, God. We ask, Lord, in particular for society, that you would, through your special providence, hold back the forces that would tear down both legally, socially, and otherwise our families and our children and destroy them. We pray for our work situation, God, above. We ask, Lord, that we would work as unto you, that we would work well, that we would work intelligently, that we would know our limitations, and that we would strengthen our weaknesses, God, so that we can be a good worker to our company, but ultimately for your glory. And we ask God for wisdom in such regard, Lord, for perhaps the need to change a job, perhaps, Lord, to uh, better interact with co-workers or our bosses, God. Give us wisdom, give us patience, give us the fruit of the Spirit, we pray, in our work situation. Our God, we pray that we would instruct our children, our grandchildren, to take work seriously and to work as unto the Lord and to work well. Our God, we pray for the work that we have that's not called worked often, Lord, because society often only puts value upon work that makes money. So we pray, Lord, for those who are at home, the wives and the children, God, and taking care of the house, and the husbands who have to take care of the house as well, Lord, and the yard work and the cars and everything else that you've given us as stewards, Lord, that we would do these things well. Lord, we would do these without grumbling hearts. We pray, God, and lift up for our hearts are concerned during this snowy time. For those who are traveling, for ourselves, Lord, and back and forth on this, your Lord's Day, God, that you would protect and watch over us as you've continued to do. Watch over everyone else, Lord, who's going to church this Lord's Day. And for those who are on vacation, God, and who are abroad, you'd watch and protect them as well for our family members. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the ability to have good roads and to have good driving skills to the extent that we do, to the extent that we don't, Lord, to accept our limitations, God, as hard as it is for some of our members who can't make it to church. 
they would relax on your day and be thankful for the technology that we have that we can transmit over the internet uh, this sermon and these songs of praise. We thank you, God, although it's hard to drive on, we thank you for the moisture. It's been very dry, Lord, as you know. And uh, God, and so we pray for more moisture, more rain in the spring, God, for we need it as we have a surplus of people coming into this area. And we pray, God, for those who have survived the fires, uh, Lord, up in Superior and elsewhere, that you would be with them, especially for the Christians, God, and help them to overcome their difficulties and the hardship that they are going through right now. May the churches be drawn to them and to you, God. May this be an opportunity for them to show more love and also an opportunity for them to witness to the surrounding area, Lord, of the dangers of rejecting you. The fire was no accident. It was part of a reminder, Lord, of where this world is going if it does not repent and trust in you. Help us, God, to keep that in sight, but also, Lord, to keep in sight of your love for us through Christ Jesus, that he has taken our judgment for us. We pray, Lord, for your mercies to continue throughout this day, Lord, and to guide us through this worship. In your name alone we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Praise you, God, for the many wonderful things you've given us, God, in this world, for the care of our body, for the care of our mind, for the care of our emotions, Lord, and ultimately for the care of our soul through Christ Jesus, our Lord, and the means of grace you've given us. And so we give these tithes and offerings, God, as a token or a part of the whole of all that is ultimately yours, Lord, because of our love for you. Bless them, we pray. Amen. While we are standing, let's go ahead and sing Psalm 56. Psalm 56. Inside.
reading of the Apostles' Creed, which is uh, in the hymnal. It's a green sheet. Inside the hymnal, hopefully, if you don't have one. And we have the Apostles' Creed on the inside. Let us say it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're over halfway through the book. Verses 1 through 6. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Let us pray. With these words, God above, we are encouraged to persevere, uh, to realize that the Christian life will involve suffering to one degree or another. In the time and age in which we find ourselves in, Lord, unfortunately it's becoming more real than less. We ask, God, that we would be encouraged by this sermon, be encouraged by your words, Lord, to persevere, to not give up, to put our mind to arm our mind, as it was with Christ, Lord, to suffer for righteousness' sake. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Although not common in our circles, it is common in much of America to think of Christianity as an easy religion. Perhaps strange and bigoted, but otherwise something that can be embraced because it does not cost much to follow. We see that often with uh, Hollywood stars and whatnot saying, I'm a Christian. And you're like, okay, so you're going to stop making those movies? <laughs> no, no, no cost to me, just whatever it costs. Uh, you think it is there, it's not really there at all. Christianity is just something really easy to do. I just go to church now and then, I mouth the right words, and there you have it. So it's more common, as I said, than we realize, just not in our circles, praise be to the Lord. After all, for decades, being a Christian never meant losing one's house or livelihood, let alone losing one's life. Even in our circles, brothers and sisters, being a Christian didn't have much of a sacrifice. 
That doesn't make it wrong. It's just the facts of where we are in history. But we have seen how that has changed in the last few years. You could lose your livelihood. We have seen that with people who lost their floral business with flowers because they stood upon what they believed to be true, what the Word of God tells them. They lost their livelihood. Even so, it's still not that common, praise the Lord. Now, Matthew Henry gives a nice summary here. The work of a Christian is a twofold, doing the will of God and suffering his pleasure. This chapter directs us to both, described in 1 Peter 4. The duties we are here exhorted to employ ourselves in are the mortification of sin, living to God, sobriety, prayer, charity, hospitality, and the best improvement of our talents which the Apostle presses upon Christians from the consideration of the time that they have lost in their sins. You read there in verses 4, or 3 and 4. In the approaching end of all things. So at the beginning of this chapter, to drill in here in these verses 1 through 6, we have the call to arm ourselves, arm our mind, with this truth that Christ Jesus himself suffered. And why do we think we're not going to suffer, is the implication. The first point, armed with Christ, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, this is a fact, arm yourselves also with the same mind, the same reality, the same acceptance of following the Father, even if it means suffering. Reminder that this is a continuation of the thoughts here in chapter 3, the latter part. The chapter divisions are artificial. For Christ has once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Right? Verse 18 of chapter 3. And so you see a similar idea. It's the same idea. He picks up this thought. He started in verse 18, and he went off and did something a little different there in verses 19 and 20, but comes back here and drills into the details of what it means that Christ suffered. What does that mean for your life? For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing, he says in chapter 3. That's the context of suffering. Now, suffering for its own sake, as some religions and branches of Christianity taught, it's going to the desert and live your own miserable life as a monk. That makes you more holy. No, you're suffering for doing good. You'd rather not suffer. I don't want to suffer. But if you're going to do good, you may suffer, and you must accept that, because Christ did. That's the connection to those verses, and that's where we are in his line of thought. The theme from chapter 2 onward, as you recall, is to keep doing the right thing regardless. As a citizen... Submit to your government. As a servant, work hard. As a wife or as a husband, no matter the suffering, do it. Because Christ did the same. That's why he unpacks those various duties and responsibilities we have in society. He's saying, you as Christians, it hasn't changed. You have those duties and responsibilities, but now the change is you may suffer for doing the right thing. As a citizen, as a family member. Now, what's interesting here in verse 4 is, Therefore Christ suffered for us in the flesh, and so you must also have the same mind. Arm yourself, equip yourself as for combat war, because Christ has gone before you. He has already suffered. This is the path he takes, and the implication is what? It's the path you're going to probably take to one degree or another. You will take it. The suffering will be in various degrees, to be sure. And this reminds me of the language of Hebrews 12, too. 
Christ the pathfinder. He's the trailblazer. Looking into Jesus, the author. Or pathfinder. It's a unique word there. It's interesting. And finisher of our faith. Because he's gone before us. And you too shall go the same path because Christ has already gone for before us. You know you can persevere because he will be with you. And he is even sympathetic because he's also gone through similar struggles, yet without sin. And that's the same idea here, although that word pathfinder isn't there. But I wanted to highlight that as a reminder, brothers and sisters, what you're going through is not that unique. What you may go through, what the churches may go through is not that unique. Christ has gone first. Christ has suffered for us in our stead for our sins as a precursor to the life of sanctification. He has suffered in the flesh that is in his body as a man who identifies with humanity, the physical and mental pain and misery he went through for us to save us, but also to walk the same path that we're going to walk. It's both. When he suffered, it wasn't as though we're never going to suffer. Now, the suffering also includes the suffering of the judgment of God. That's true. We will not have that kind of suffering. Don't confuse the two. Christ took that suffering. Christ took our punishment of death for us in our stead. That's not what he's emphasizing here. He's emphasizing here the everyday suffering of our sanctification, of following the Lord Jesus Christ, not the kind of suffering of, hey, this is what you deserve. You ought to go to hell. Christ took that. But there are the other suffering of being a follower of the Lord, of purging us of our sins. That's what the connection he makes here in the next few verses, right? That you no longer continue to live in the lust of your flesh. But to persevere in the call of holiness. If Christ suffered, why should we assume we will not suffer? It's implied. It doesn't outright say it, obviously. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same mind... As Christ who suffered, because you too are going to suffer. In fact, he says, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So he goes right into the reason for the suffering that you're going to go through in those verses. To arm ourselves is to think as Christ thought, which is to submit to the Father above. We are no greater than our Master. If he went through it, we're going to go through it. They hated him, they will hate us. And hate his church. To arm ourselves, that's the main idea here, to arm our mind. It's a way of thinking, is that word. It's a different word than the other words there you're used to. Mental conception which follows deliberation is the idea there. A mental conception which follows deliberation. To arm your mind is to rethink the matter and to realize this is the way the, it's going to be. It's counting the cost, isn't it? Christ says, count the cost when it means to follow me as a disciple. And part of that cost is you will suffer. It may not be physical suffering, but it will be real suffering. Spiritual, psychological, whatever. It's there, and it's part of the Christian life. And the way he equips them is interesting, right? Arm yourselves also with what? The same emotional attitude, the same way of doing something. He talks about doing a little later, by implication here in these verses and later elsewhere. And emotions are involved, to be sure. But he's focusing upon your thoughts, the way you think. What are your thoughts about what it means to follow the Lord? Does it include suffering? Does it include pain and difficulties and tribulations and trials? 
It should. And the churches ought to teach their people this and teach the new converts this. Next week, Lord willing, Courtney will be here. He will, she will, she will have a profession of faith. She grew up Roman Catholic. And she saw a lot of bad things there, questionable things, and she's tired of it. She has been told, and she knows, Christian life will include suffering. Arm ourselves, brothers and sisters. You may forget, you may get distracted, you may get emotional, you may get tired, you may get hungry, but one of the first places you start with is read the Word of God and meditate, that is, contemplate. The mental conception which follows deliberation, deliberately think about what it means to follow the Lord. It includes suffering, various degrees of suffering, and to commit yourself now all the more. Peter is appealing to the truth of Christ's suffering as what we are called to do. This is what Christianity includes, as we know. To equip ourselves for a difficult life, we must meditate and think upon the simple fact that Christ suffered as well. And we too shall suffer. And this, although it's not the end of the deliberation, deliberation is not only to arm our minds, but to arm our minds with what? The reality that suffering itself, in the body, it says in the flesh, has ceased from sin. It helps you fight against sin, to no longer live in sin, to express the purpose of ceasing from sin. The ceasing there is not permanent. It will be permanent in heaven, to be sure. But now, of course, there's a beginning of ceasing of sin. That he no longer should live in the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. When we are born again, we begin with a renewed heart that flees sin, that hates being near sin, that, re- and that is repulsed by sin. We are renewed to fight against sin, to resist living in sin. Not that we never sinned. A reminder of 1 John, we're told that he who says you never sinned is a liar. The truth is not in him. We do sin. The ceasing here is an ongoing activity. It's begin, it begins with being born again, and it continues on through various tools of God's providence. And one of those tools is suffering. It is an instrument. It's not the only thing here, but that's what he's focusing on here, because that's one of the main themes of Peter, that the church is dispersed across the Mediterranean. The suffering will come. And the suffering has a purpose. One of the purposes, not the only. One of them is to help you fight against sin, to cease from sinning. Living in Christ means dying to sin. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. To the power of sin, I know it feels like I, I've overcome sin. We're talking about, Pastor. I still struggle with sin. It feels like it's really powerful in my life. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you hate your sin? Then you have overcome. Because the world doesn't have trust in Christ Jesus. The world doesn't hate their sin. They hate the consequences of their sin. That's all the difference in the world. It's different language here than here, elsewhere in the Bible, but the same idea. We read in Matthew 16, 24, where Christ says, Take up your cross. Count the cost, he says elsewhere. Different metaphors to highlight what? You're going to follow Jesus... You're going to lose something. You may lose sleep. You may lose friends. You may lose your job, as some of our brothers and sisters have in the last few years. But you'll have the greatest pearl of greatest price, Jesus Christ. Romans 7.25, we read, 
I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. In which he summarizes there in Romans 7 his internal struggle with temptation. With breaking God's law as a believer, as one who loves the Lord. And his inclusion is, with the mind I serve the law of God. I am committed to him even though I still struggle with sin. It's a reality. So he's ceasing, he's beginning to cease from sin. Romans 6.5 we read a similar idea here. Clearly a parallel passage here to verse 1. Romans 6.5, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we shall no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. It's the same idea. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, from the power of sin, its dominance over you as it is over the world the world that hates the Lord, the world that loves sin. For we have spent enough of our time, our past lifetime, in doing the will of the Gentiles. So he's explaining a little more clearly here. That we should no longer live in the rest of his time in the flesh. We unpack that as well. It's it's a continuation there of verse 1. But for the will of God, that's the Christian life, to kill sin, and to renew righteousness. And he gives the background here, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. This is one of the strong evidences that Peter is not writing to Jews as such, but to Christians, most of whom are Gentiles. Pagans, they would have been called back then. Unbelievers. They didn't have the Jewish instruction and training as other Christians had, like we saw all in the book of Acts, for example, just all kinds of Jews being saved. But here it seems the audience is mostly Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drunken parties, and abominable idolatries. That's quite a list. Not an exhaustive list. Unfortunately, we see that today. So when he says you cease from sin, and you say, but pastor, I've not ceased from sin, and he can reply, look, you used to be drunk. You used to have drinking parties. You used to have abominable idolatries and worship pagan idols, literally. Stone and statues. And you no longer do that. You have ceased from sin. Not perfectly. Not exhaustively. But truly and really, nevertheless. And same with us today, brothers and sisters. You have the sins. You struggle with them. And Peter speaks to us today and says... You had spent your lifetime in the past. Before you were a Christian, you walked in lewdness. You didn't think anything of it. You had these terrible parties. Debauchery. Drunkenness. Drugs today. They had drugs back then as well. And he threw it all away. He said, I don't want that. I don't want that anymore. I want to follow the Lord. That's what he's talking about. This is what he's encouraging them. And that's part of the suffering the cease from sin, because it can be hard. If you have a drug addiction, and you try to get off of that, it's hard. It could take a lifetime. It literally could take a lifetime. But you'll always fight it, and you'll always struggle, because Christians never give up. They have the Spirit of God in them, even though they feel like they want to give up. 
And so here he's describing what it means to cease from sin. He gives these details of the Gentile lifestyle. A lifestyle I think many of us recognize today. <laughs> Not much has changed under the sun, has it? And he continues on here, verses 4 to 5. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. You don't hang out at the parties anymore. You don't get drunk anymore. You don't get high anymore. You don't watch filthy movies and books anymore. What's your problem? And arming us with the same mind as arming us for the suffering of what we have here, which is mocking us, perhaps. It's not very specific. It's just speaking evil of you. It's a very broad word, right? What's your problem? You're some weirdo? You think you're better than us? You've all heard that before, right? Perhaps that or perhaps even stronger than that. They think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Dissipation, that word we're not used to, is reckless immoral behavior. It's very broad. Reckless immoral behavior. And of course, a flood is a deluge of wickedness every night and every day. Those Gentile sins. Again, sins we see today that are on the rise in America and in our neighborhoods. Today, many people are like that, but privately, of course. And then they go off to the bar or whatever else, even your nice neighbors. And they think it's strange that you don't live such a life of debauchery. That's part of the suffering they're going through. Name-calling, bad-mouthing, lying about them, perhaps. We know in the early church they lied about the Christians and said they ate people. That's what they thought was going on in communion. You can lose your job with the wrong kind of, right kind of lie, wrong kind of lie. Maybe they lost their jobs. We don't know specifically the effects of it, but it was bad enough he had to write to them, don't give up. Suffering will happen. Christ suffered. They think you strange for not living such a wicked life. They speak evil of you. Evil through lies, of course. Christians are bigots we hear today. Christians are mean. They don't want to have fun. And of course, the worst kind of lies are the broad-based lies across society where the movies and the entertainment and the media and the politicians lie about our Lord and Savior, don't they? They make up images that are not really Him. They put words in his mouth that are not really his. And of course they're imputing it to us because they know we follow Jesus. They mock our Lord, they mock us. They make fun of pastors and whatnot in the movies and the shows. They're the dull ones, they're the ones that are, can't catch up on things. The public lies that can hinder employment, for example, in bigger businesses now. If you don't say the right things and do the right things, as we saw from the riots last year, you could lose your job. <clears throat> of course, back then, lies to the right people and the right kind of lies could lead to your stoning. <laughs> he doesn't mention that because he knows his audience knows what's up. You could have a right. Paul. Stephan, thank the Lord it hasn't happened to us. The riots of last year were not targeted specifically at Christians as such, although there was a lot of anger in that direction if you read a lot of local news. 
Now, in describing the hatred the world has for you, speaking evil of you, because you won't go back to the old wicked ways. You love the law of God. You love Jesus, and you want to follow his word. Peter gives them encouragement. Do you see that here in verse 5? They, who's they? The Gentiles, the unbelievers, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This verse makes no sense other than he puts it in there to encourage them that although they speak evil of you, they will be judged for that evil. Remember, in chapter 2, verse 23, he writes, He did not threaten, that is Jesus, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus knew that he was doing the right thing even though people lied about him, and he committed his cause to the Father who will judge righteously, that is, he will declare Christ innocent, and those liars about Christ guilty. They don't repent. That's what he's saying there. And then again, in verse 12 of chapter 2, that they may, by your good works, which they observe, the unbeliever observes, your good works, you no longer being drunk, you no longer uh, be having abominable idolatries and revelries and lewdness and filth, or rather the opposite, pure and humble and loving God and his people and taking care of one another, that they may, by your good works, Glorify God in the day of visitation. That's three times in the book here. He talks about the judge, and the judge will right every wrong, is the implication, isn't it? So it's encouragement, and I hope it's encouragement for you, brothers and sisters. Yes, you want people to repent. Unfortunately, people will not repent. Not everyone. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God will judge those who misjudged you if they will not repent. The third point, not only armed with the same mind, armed for suffering, and they speak evil of you, and of course in the speaking there's lots of consequences that come from that, and then armed for living for God, verse 6. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. The gospel preaching and its power. The gospel was preached to those who are dead. Now, some think this refers to preaching to those who are now dead, right? They preached to them while they were alive, but now they're dead. But I think it's connected to chapter 3 where we, we uh, read about souls, right? We read about souls. They were made and uh, preached to the spirits in prison, verse 19. And how that is a metaphor for those who are in the prison of their sin, that their souls are bound in iniquity, and God has released them through Christ Jesus for salvation. And so the same idea here, I think, is expressed that as he's talking about you and me. Because he continues on here and he says in verse 6, Priests of those who are dead, what about them? That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. How can you live if they're already dead? Now, the living to God according to life and the Spirit, to, to God and the Spirit, it's the same idea as we read elsewhere in Peter, which is the life of holiness and sanctification. We're empowered by the Spirit. And it parallels about Christ in verse 18 of chapter 3, where he died in the flesh, but was made alive in the Spirit. And he's encouraging us that we have the Spirit of God. We are dead to the sins of this world and our flesh, our bodily appetites, right? Our desire for fame, our desire to eat, our desire to sleep, our desire to be liked, whatever that is. That's exaggerated by sin. 
that is being purged, that is being mortified, those sins, by the power of the Spirit of God in us, as the same Spirit that was in Jesus Christ. Verse 18. It shows the power of God into salvation to we who were dead and trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. It's the power of preaching to, that is foolishness to the world that we must promote, that we must support. For this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are dead, and we were dead. And God used the foolishness of preaching to bring us to new life. The Spirit of God. Well, what does he mean by judge by men? In verse 6 here, the, the clause to that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, that is men in the body, bodily men, physical men, not spiritual men. Living men aren't judging dead men, so again, it's a, it's a metaphor, the dead there. These men who are judging you, who are judging you, who have heard the gospel and believe. What's the point of that? What's he talking about? The idea here is their suffering in the present is part of their sanctification. Those speaking evil of Christians are men judging Christians wrongly. They speak evil of you, they're speaking wrongly of you. It's a false judgment. You are not evil. <laughs> You're righteous in Christ Jesus. You have a new life. And they are judging you wrongly, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. And God uses that judgment, the false judgment of men, to sanctify you. That you would stand firm and follow Jesus and hate the wickedness of the world, your old former life. And say, whatever, you can mock me because I used to hang out with you. and I don't do that anymore. I don't care. I'm going to follow Jesus. And that's hard to do. Peer pressure is real. We want good peer pressure, not bad peer pressure. Bad peer pressure is real. And they judge you, and they get angry with you, and they mock you, and they lie about you. But here, they are judging with the eyes of the flesh instead of the eyes of faith. And the gospel brings salvation to us using the wrongful judgment of unbelievers for our own good. Because suffering means we're starting to cease from sin. The suffering of following the Lord, of hating sin, the suffering of the world mocking us for that. So that's what I believe he's speaking of here, that they might, that it's, we might be judged according to men in the flesh. It's going to happen. It's one of the tools God uses in his providence to help us grow. But it's a false judgment. In spite of this false judgment of unbelievers, the gospel brings us to life according to God in the Spirit. The latter half of verse 6, but live, but live according to God in the Spirit, or life in him. The life of holiness, the life of Christ Jesus and righteousness. So flesh and spirit are contrasted as they were there in verse chapter 3, verse 18, implying that we will struggle with our bodies even as we live the Christian life in the spirit. The two are going go together. You're born again, you're born again unto some suffering. I'm sorry, but that's the case. And we're told to equip ourselves accordingly and to know that we have the Spirit of God in us. And that part of the gospel preaching is we will be misjudged by people, but it doesn't matter because we live unto God and not unto people. In spite of the suffering for righteousness' sake, in spite of suffering for doing the right thing as a citizen, as a servant, as a wife, or as a husband, as he mentioned in the prior verses, we live according to God and the Spirit. We have the promise of perseverance and the gracious Spirit indwelling in us, brothers and sisters, and we can say no. We have a higher calling. Let us arm ourselves. Let us arm our minds and our thoughts. 
brothers and sisters, with these truths, that Christ suffered, so shall we. But that suffering is to purge us from sin, that we may live unto God in the Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, God, above for these words of encouragement, a reminder, a strong reminder, God, to gird ourselves right now, to contemplate in our minds, to meditate and to realize and accept. We will go through some suffering. We pray it won't be a lot of suffering, God. We pray that we will be properly equipped, as we know we will be properly equipped by your promised word, because we live according to God and the Spirit. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing. Hymn 509, 509. grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.
Thank you.